0: Profiles in Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. All right. Hello and welcome, everyone, to Profiles and Strategy, our podcast here at the uh, Strategy and Policy Department, U.S. Denver War wow. College. Um, this is part one of the Endless Wars case study. We're doing a different format this week. We're breaking it down into three parts. So it's going to be a podcast on a breakout session on Afghanistan, which is this one, a breakout session on Iraq, and a breakout session on uh, later-day Iraq, which is uh, ISIS. Um, so those will those will follow on. But this is part one, and I'm Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps, your host. Joining me this week, my fellow colleagues from the Strategy and Policy Department. First, we have Lieutenant Colonel Mike Shaw, Ph.D. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, John. Uh, next, we have Colonel Pat McCarthy, Ph.D.
1: Welcome, Pat. Appreciate, appreciate the opportunity, John. Thank you.
0: And last, but certainly not least, Dr. Mark Genest. Welcome. Mark.
2: Thank you. Always a pleasure.
0: So format for this week, slightly different. We're going more of a, a practitioner-type uh, focused, a veteran-type fo- focused podcast, if you will. So all four of uh, the people on this podcast, to include you know my, myself, my, my three guests, and me, have time on the ground in Afghanistan. So what I'd like to do to start out is just kind of um, uh, a quick... 30-second introduction of your experience with Afghanistan. And and Pat, we'll go ahead and start with you.
1: So thank you, John. Uh, Real quick, right? My experiences uh, holistically in the global war on terror and specifically to Afghanistan is actually very limited. I was an infantry officer in 2001 when we had the spectacular attacks. My unit was mobilized. We went to Uzbekistan. Uh, initially as a QRF force in preparation for the invasion, my on-the-ground tactical experience was limited to the mazar sharif Kandahar March in support of other operations that were going on. There's some great anecdotal war stories, but I was a very young uh, military officer at that time in a direct leadership role, so I would be able to speak from a Very uh, tactical and operational perspective about the passion, the reason, and also the military objectives, as I interpreted them, of what we were trying to accomplish uh, in the aftermath of uh, September 11, 2001. I have had the opportunity over the remainder of my career to have lots of introspection, reflection, and examination as I've matured to talk about and think about what are we accomplishing, why are we there, And how does this actually end, which we we do know that the Afghanistan um, situation uh, and experience did recently terminate in the past, uh, you know, the recent past. So I I look forward to that opportunity to examine these in depth from both a practitioner and as a uh, scholarly perspective. Thank you.
0: and now, of course, as a military professor in the strategy and policy department, you bring the wealth and depth of knowledge to, uh, to analyze that experience on a different uh, level of analysis, right? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> awesome, thank you. Next, we'll go to you, Mike.
3: Sure, uh, so my experience in Afghanistan, uh, I'm an aviator by trade and h H sixty-four pilot attack aviation. Uh, so my time there was with a, a task force during uh, 2005, 2006. So as, uh, as Pat spoke about the invasion, uh, we were there as the priority was shifting from Afghanistan to uh, to Iraq, and so my experience there was predominantly in the north. Uh, I was uh, responsible at Bagram for uh, fuel and ammo for the entirety of the aviation task force that was there, including segmenting down to the task force that was in Kandahar because we had split operations between the two of uh, two aviation task forces over the entirety of uh, of Afghanistan. So uh, that really covered my area between seven refuel and rearming stations, um, Asalabad, Salerno, Organi, Ghazni, Jalalabad, Bagram itself, um, et cetera. So uh, that that was kind of my experience. Again, kind of like Pat, young in my career, um so i was a young captain at the time so very tactical uh and what we did and you know can speak to the operations of how we were doing but uh can there's definitely some reflection taking place as we look back at the overlap of the operations during the war on terror through that that
0: time uh-huh. awesome thank you Mike.
3: Yeah, mark
2: um i in 2009 i worked with 10th mountain division as a civilian advisor on counterinsurgency strategy and information operations Uh, up at uh, FOB Fenty in Regional Command East. Uh, And then in 2011, I was invited to uh, division headquarters in Kandahar to do the same kind of work. Uh, There I oversaw some MISO operations, military information support operations, um, as well as looked into um, our reconstruction aid and and the economics behind the uh, tremendous amount of money being poured into Afghanistan. So I was, I was strictly a civilian advisor.
0: Mm-hmm. Awesome, thank you. Uh, and by nice. the
2: way, I, I was there was, I, when I was young as well. Um, I was, I think, in my teens in 2009.
0: <laughs> and you haven't looked like you aged a day since then. No, time. it's <laughs> amazing, isn't it?
2: <laughs>
0: Outstanding. So for myself, I was, um, uh, I was on the ground from December of 11 uh, through uh, the end of, uh, of 12. I was with the Marine a Regimental Combat Team, uh, the 6th Marine Regiment. Um, We—I I was the uh, Assistant Operations Officer, Effects, and later in the deployment, the Future Operations Officer. Um, we oversaw the northern parts of uh, Helmand Provinces and in Nimruz. Later on, we took over all of, of Helmand Province. Uh, during the—I was there during the drawdown from the surge, as the surge was was ramping back down, and uh, oversaw the. Uh, um, we lost about five thousand men. You know, Marine troop towns had to send them home. So we went from being able to garrison that part of Helmand with um, you know thousands of men to to just over two thousand in, in the space of a few months. Uh, and the Taliban took advantage of that. Um, so anyway, so that that's kind of good that we have we have coverage throughout almost the entire decade here to, of Afghanistan of uh, of our of our guests, which is which is kind of neat, different perspectives. So I want to start it off. Beginning with the end in mind, of you know, how just as as kind of a way to kind of ground this discussion, we all watched what happened uh, in Afghanistan, the ending on TV, and I wanted to get your perspectives on this. How did it it, it hit you on an emotional level? Because I know for me, it it was very difficult to watch as a veteran of of Afghanistan, someone who had heard shots fired, an angle, anger, been engaged in in. In overseeing, you know, combat operations with the Taliban to see how things ended and to see how things um, unfolded there at the very end. Um, so, yeah, just just a quick kind of thing, Mark. How did that hit you on a on a you know professional slash emotional level?
2: Uh well, the late, the closest I came to danger is when um, I was being transported, and we heard these little dings on our uh, on our. um, on the helicopter, as well as on the convoy, the AMRAP convoys. Before I understood what was happening, all chaos had broken out, so I had no idea what was going on because I didn't even have a a sidearm at that point. (laughs) So it was abject fear and going, what the hell am I doing here? I don't even have a nice uniform. Um, But it hit me, it was actually really fascinating because I mean, I I came to the War College literally a year after 9-11. And that was one of the reasons I was brought here. Uh, So it hit me both emotionally and intellectually. Intellectually, I'd come to the conclusion in 2009 that our coin strategy was failing and that it was unlikely to succeed. So I thought that we should have gotten out of Afghanistan much earlier. Uh, Emotionally, it hit me that I felt like we were going through the Vietnam syndrome once again, where the military felt betrayed by political leaders, where political leaders felt betrayed by military leaders, um, and it's the same thing. And when we study the after the Vietnam War and look at the Comer uh, article, bureaucracy does its thing, and a whole series of other things, what we realized, or I came to a realization, literally my first couple of weeks uh, on ground in 2009, was that we were making the same exact mistakes. So more than anything, it's a feeling of absolute frustration.
0: Mm. Interesting. Uh, Pat, we'll go to you next.
1: So, John, this this hits me emotionally, right, um, watching this play out, okay? So, as I described before, having been there at the beginning of the conflict, right? And, and Mark's words speak, you know, about the first experience, the first thing of of combat, right? So, one of the first casualties of the global war on terror in Afghanistan were, were special operations, okay? Uh, at the Kandahar... International at Hamid Karzai International Airport uh, during the evacuation. The last army soldier, okay, there was 13 that were killed there. The last soldier that was killed there was a special operations soldier from my parent unit of Fort Bragg, young Staff Sergeant Ryan Knoss, right? Uh, I never met the young man, but how this ab- impacts me and how I'm reflecting upon it and having some catharsis is was young Staff Sergeant Knoss, young Lieutenant McCarthy in 2001? an individual that joined for his own motivation, a person that felt the call and a person that was willing to risk their life in support of an objective. And much like Mark said, right? This this young non-commissioned officer did not have the reflection, the experience, okay? And and the growth throughout this to examine. Um, I have a 19 year old son who has never known a period until recently that the United States was not at war. And unless I actually sit down and talk with him and talk to him about his political values and about his um, indoctrination into it, right? Because they have always experienced a degree of readiness, edge, and to a degree, threat because of this two decade long engagement. There's a bit of rambling here, right? But um, tell me how this ends and the decision for war termination. For Afghanistan in particular, um, seems very, very um, messy is probably just the best way to say it, right? And uh, I look forward to exploring some more of these these thoughts amongst the, this collection here because, you know, Mark realized in 2009 that it was problematic, you know, and, you know, there's the opportunity for us to actually have a, a deeper examination about uh, interaction, re, uh, reassessment and adaptation throughout our strategy, throughout our approach, uh, specific to this episode in the global war on terror. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you. Mike,
3: you know, I was, uh, John, I was kind of actually surprised when everything kind of came to it, came to conclusion. Um, I could see some of the strong emotion, uh, some of the frustration, hostility, um, et cetera from peers because um, uh, I was currently at the War College in Carlisle when this kind of came down. Uh, as a matter of fact, I had an intel officer in my group who had literally just come from Afghanistan, um, you know, to watch this, to watch this then unf- unfold like literally 30 days later. Um, and through that, I have surprisingly found myself somewhat removed. I don't have too much emotion regarding it. Um, I look at the you know, I, I can see the decisions that we made as a nation. I can look at the decisions we made as a military, and I can analyze that. I think there's importance to reflect, uh, especially being here, uh, you know, at the Naval War College, to bring these to light and try to bring as many perspectives to the students in order to um, to as kind of as Mark said in Pat alluded to, to try to prevent um, or reduce the possibility of frictions like this taking place in the future. Um, but you know, I, I funny enough, I, I didn't have a, and I don't know if it's due to when I served and the fact that it was, uh, so long ago over there or whether or not it was due to my separation being that I was in the air for the predominance. And, you know, I, my exposure to the the local population was around the fobs and at gates and with, and with, you know, individuals working on the installations, et cetera, where, where we were at. Um, so I was, you know, again, I was surprised that I didn't really have a strong emotion, to um, to the situation as far as at least as much as being portrayed through media reporting through conversations and through just expressions of, uh, of peers. So hmm. somewhat 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 dampened in, in, in my experience.
0: Sure. OK. Um, so I want to pull on the thread that, you know, so we just mentioned this, Mark, with with the parallels to Vietnam. But it seems to me, and and, and I also I, I asked that first question because we talk a lot about the Clausewitz Witson Trinity of passion, reason, and chance. So I wanted to get the passion out of the way first, but for all of us, because there now let's now let's talk about reason and, and chance. But in the in the context, my my question is: did we understand the nature of the war? The Clausewitz Witson concept, as he, as he states it, do you you know do you first understand the nature of the war? And I want to ask it. The 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 caveat of that question is. We make a lot of parallels to Vietnam and certainly there are times in Afghanistan where you you can directly see the parallels. But it seems to me that there are a number of fundamental differences with Afghanistan, one of which, as as Pat, you just mentioned, we went in to take to to take over to topple the Taliban regime. And then we essentially installed our own government, which is a fundamental difference from what was going on in um, uh, in South Vietnam. Um, so, do do we make t- in the context of understanding the nature of the war, do we make too many comparisons to Vietnam with uh, with this case? And and Mark, let's go ahead and start the, that one with you.
2: Um, well, look, each war is unique unto itself, uh, and and yet you can. draw. I mean, the reason why we study military strategy is that we can learn from examples uh, in history to ask the right questions. Uh, And to see what works and what does not work. The parallel that I found most striking was the amount of aid that we put into a government that was less committed to achieving the aim than we were, that was corrupt, ineffective, ineffectual, and did not represent um, its people adequately. Um, Those five parallels are uncanny. Uh, And then you add to that the U.S. failure to reassess and adapt in a timely fashion. Um, and then the discord. Remember, when we first went into Afghanistan, uh, military leaders were telling us, hey, we're, we're not going to do the KIA, KIA accounts anymore, uh, like we did in Vietnam, because that got us into some of this, uh, 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 just an unconstructive uh, cycle. Uh, and yet, what did we end up doing? We ended up doing this caches of weapons, the KIA, KIAs, uh, prisoners, all these things. We ended up doing the same exact thing. Look, I started the Center on Irregular Warfare at the War College because my students were coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq going, you know, I don't really understand this counterinsurgency stuff. And I've had a little bit of it, but I I just don't understand enough about it because we were making some of the same mistakes that we made in Vietnam. Um, So yeah, no war is identical, but they rhyme. And there's enough rhyming between Afghanistan and Vietnam to make us ask a very important question. Why the hell didn't we learn a damn thing from Vietnam? Uh, And then you also look at the antagonistic relationship between military leaders and political leaders that exacerbated the thing. So you have all kinds of incredible parallels here that are important for us to dig in and go, why do we continue to make the same mistakes?
0: Okay. Uh, Mike, any thoughts on this one?
3: You know, I, I think my biggest takeaway in the comparison is the, you know, we, we spend 10 months with the students here. Right. And so when I look at this, I, you know, we all have a vague idea of what Vietnam, what happened there, you know, historians, you know, uh, political scientists have have a deeper, right. Academics have a deeper understanding than, than the general public. And I think there's an interesting, um, there's an interesting line to walk on the generalization, as kind of Mark said, right? We can generalize and say this was like Vietnam, third on. And then having the knowledge to dive, as Mark pointed out with his five points and say, here are the pieces that connect and why, right? And do that analysis. Um, the, striking, the striking piece to me is that when I look at the beginning of Vietnam, is I look at some of, the, some of the writings that we've gone through and the readings that are here in the course. And you see the political connection, the political uh, awareness of how complicated Vietnam is going to be. And yet we still got involved. You know, there's you know all you know from JFK, um, you know all the way to Nixon is the acknowledgement of hey this is this is something that I don't know that we need to get into, and yet as they moved into positions of power, um, they were either they felt obligated or there was some sort of necessity they felt to commit U.S. blood and treasure to this to this aspect, um, and I think the same is with Afghanistan, right? I mean, as as you and I were talking previously uh, before this podcast started, right? four administrations, you know, how many, there's been five or five administrations were were involved in Afghanistan. Of that, four of them talked about leaving. Of that, you know, one started movement, one made the final deal, and one administration had to deal with the, the results thereof, right? So it's never as simple as, you know, how come we didn't, you know, and I'm not saying, I'm not inferring that Mark means it's simple, but it's not just saying, this is like Vietnam, how come we didn't learn, right? I mean, you know, when you have four different political administrations Five dealing with it, four uh, negotiating it, three contemplating departure, one putting it in motion, and then one finally living with it. You know the complexity is 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 is, uh, is large, and so I, I think it's important to discuss, and I think it's important to try to find, as Mark said, like the rhyming. Why you know as we move into the next um, the next confrontation, what looks like, smells like, tastes like. And then what's different, right? What, what of it, you know, still looks like a cupcake, but is it, you know, and and, you know, can we make that change um, in order to make a different product? So we don't run up with the same results, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and that's, uh, and you know, and as we all know here, as, as practitioners and civilians, once you put once you put boots on the ground, the environment starts to change, right? And once you once you put things in motion, you can have the you know the whole the best plans go out the door. Once you make contact, the enemy gets a vote. Whatever analogy you want to use, same process here, right? You can put a plan to say that we're gonna that we're gonna leave at a certain date and time, and you can argue whether it should be publicized. You can argue whether or not the government should have been involved with the host nation. You can make all the different arguments you want. Once you start putting those things into motion. When the military starts to fold on itself, when the government departs and decides not to do things, when the U.S. needs to step up and we need to evacuate, you know, tens of thousands of people, things start to change. And what was a simple plan of humanitarian or a clear, you know, segmented design of humanitarian aid and and retrograde turns into a, we've got two weeks, what can we do? All forces forward, let's get as much out as we can. Yeah. So-
0: you you're talking about the interaction adaptation and reassessment course theme that we use here. I want to pull on that thread in just a second, but, but Pat, we'll go to you next.
1: I think it's, it's convenient at times. um, And it's also dangerous to attempt to draw parallels to Afghanistan uh, and Vietnam. Right. Um, Because the U S military is notorious for being prepared for the last war that it fought. So, you know, even in a comparison, like was Vietnam, Korea, Okay, and no more task force Smiths, that type of thing. So the question you ask, right, do we understand the nature of the war? And this is the difficulty for not only ourselves as uh, professors, right, but also for our students to grasp is what element of the Afghan theater um, was the nature of the war? You know, and we could talk about policy strategy match. We could talk about military a- objectives and political aims. It is clear prior to 2003 that the military objectives were being accomplished for the political aims in Afghanistan. When other political objectives and political aims began to switch uh, domestically, then there is at least an examination or a cause for examination of. How did things begin to uh, slip? I guess you could say inside Afghanistan with regards to what were we trying to accomplish? Did that lead into overextension? Did that lead into another thing that we talk about of mission creep? Then there's some organizational issues too that we could we could talk about with regards to how we prosecuted the war with an all-volunteer army.
2: Hey, John, can I just jump in here? Because you a know, superb comment. Um, Mike, it it, it just um, when you bring up mission creep, it's almost uh, when we framed the war, we framed the war, and that set us on the path to hell. Because when we framed it, it was the you know the war on terror, uh, and then it was the global war on terror, and then we renamed it over and over again. When you do not have a narrowly defined, clear political objective you are necessarily going to flounder around trying to figure out how to achieve an objective when that objective is not achievable. So that laid the groundwork for the mission creed. Uh, And that's an important thing to understand. But in my opinion, the Bush administration's fatal flaw was not declaring war against Al-Qaeda and its associated movements because that was a tangible enemy that you could attack. Instead, when you talked about this global war, the war on terror, it it created a a quagmire that you could never really fully succeed. And as a result, all of our political aims were disjointed. Um, And that's why the clarity of the initial year, which was hunt AQ, top of the Taliban or punish the Taliban turned into nation building, turned into this global uh, you know, uh, mission in which you were gonna chase down every terrorist group uh, that you've ever heard of. And all that did was proliferate the number of terrorist groups. Uh, so when you're looking at a fatal flaw, the fatal flaw is not giving a clear, narrowly defined uh, objective that was achievable. That to me is the cause. And that, that demonstrates that we never understood the nature of the war.
3: Marvin, question for you, does that, do you, do you take that then, you know, in my mind, I see that, you know, right, we move in to remove the Taliban and to liberate Afghanistan and and open up that sphere for where they were harboring uh, the terrorists that that facilitated 9-11. But then, right, in all missions, in all wars, depending on how bad the evil head is, right, you know, it begins, it begins to shift. So in my mind, Afghani- You know, the difficulty is saying the war in Afghanistan, right? Because if you break it down in year segments, right, it's, it's as you, as kind of as you're alluding to, it's just a different way of framing it, right? It's they're different fights. And you're right. I think that the danger is that when you don't have a clear end or the danger is when the mission changes, whether it needs to or not. I mean, I'm not saying it didn't need to change or that it, it should not have. I'm just saying that right as the mission does change or when it, it, it needs to be redefined, so that you can then adjust your objectives in order to obtain whatever that new end is. And you're right, when it keeps doing that shift, you know, as I said, I was there in five and six, you know, from two, from 02 to 04, it was very clear, right? We moved the Taliban from an active government and, and you know, and a military group to non-effectual and in the hinterlands of Pakistan and or to the, the hinterlands of Afghanistan, nowhere impacting really anything at all five and six when I was there, it was about trying to establish the government, bring credibility, allow the people to vote, trying to turn a, you know try to turn a, a um, tribal culture into a more modern day, right, giving them the right to, to have a voice in their government, um, which is a whole other discussion of culture and how it applies, right. But then right to then and the priorities now in Iraq. So the whole shift and not, you know, so it's just, it's shifting of priorities, it's reallocation of priorities, and then it becomes the, so what are we, what are we doing and where? And you're right, I think it, yeah, it complicates things, right? And what, what are you, you gonna achieve? And so that, I think that runs into what you said before is that you start looking at metrics of, if I don't know what I'm achieving and I can't connect it to anything, well, I, I found 500 caches with 1200 AK-47s, munitions, explosives, RPGs, uh, we, we killed so many terrorists and we've conducted so many missions. And then at the end, right, as each unit begins to rotate and Pat, this goes to you, we can talk about how organizationally, you know, it could be done differently, the fight, right? Every unit leaves and high fives each other going, we were the best, we did better than the last guy, but then the next guy comes in and says, we need to do better. But if everyone's, if everyone's succeeding as much as we are, the war should have been won with epic, epic conclusion come, you know, three rotations in because everyone was getting better. Everyone was most amazing. You know, which leads into that reassessment aspect that we talk about, both at the government level, at the military level, gets into the concept of feedback and honesty, which sometimes we we have a very hard time doing publicly and internally and privately. Um, so
0: those
2: are my. Why don't uh, we have
0: right, Mark, do you have a comeback to that before we go to Pat or do you want to uh, let Pat go first?
2: Well, just um, it's it's my old bugaboo, which is hubris and victory fever. We get trapped because the military does such a good job when it knows what what it wants to accomplish. Um, And then when it it accomplished the toppling of the Taliban much faster than anyone could have hoped for, Um, and then the disbursement of AQ. Uh, And that gave us this idea that, okay, now what's next? Instead of going, okay, hey, look, we taught AQ a lesson. Uh, we've we've taught the Taliban a lesson. Now, what do we do? We get out. We had that choice and we chose not to because of our incredible arrogance to think that we could change the nature of Afghan society. And, and, you know, looking back on it, you got to go just like we said in Vietnam, it's like, what were you guys thinking? Well, you weren't thinking. You were just obsessed with the idea that, you know, we had this can-do attitude, which is what you want from the military. But you also need political leaders to go, well, wait a minute here. What are our true priorities? Do we need to go that way? And it's that traditional tension between the moral dilemma of American foreign policy, we want to make the world a better place, and the pragmatic realists that say, you only use your power when you have to, and only when it's critical. Otherwise, you're going to waste your power. Uh, Here, we saw the Bush administration in the ultimate hubris uh, characterization, where they just said, well, we've got to make, we got to redo Afghanistan. Why? Why? What do they have to do for us?
0: Pat, you got a response to that. You're, uh, you're on There, Let me unmute you, Pat.
1: The opening days, right, of the global war on terror in Afghanistan was called Operation Enduring Freedom. And our military objectives were to destroy the Taliban, uh, sorry, destroy al-Qaeda, prevent safe haven and sanctuary from uh, sympathetic governments, namely the Taliban, right? Which then morphed into, you know, 2005, 6, 11, 20, you know, you were fighting the Taliban. You you were actually fighting and negotiating with, you know, uh, established governments with uh, external sponsorship, right? I mean, there was peace negotiations going on and Doha with the very government that we tore down, right? But the the global war on terror, okay? I mean, nobody talks about the periphery theater. At the same time, we had OEFP, right? We were after the Moro-Islamic Liberation Front in Afghanistan, I mean, in, in the Philippines. And much like Mike says, right? Like, we accomplished our military objectives, and Mark even said it, with like lightning blitzkrieg splendor. I mean, we tore down and routed that government faster than that's ever been done before. Why didn't we just be like, land the C-17s right at the airport and be like, Mike, Pat, John, hey bro, they're done, right? Now what? Is it even our problem to solve with this great, you know, democracy experiment or transformation of the government? And going back to like the nature of the war, right? You're always prepared for the last war, but other foreign, uh, interventions had occurred in Afghanistan before that we almost, uh, um, ignored, you know, the, the curse of history here with regards to other, um, empires that had, had been in there and not that the Americans were trying to be an empire, but you know, the Soviets had been there for 10 years fighting. The British had been there before. And, um, you know, it's just an interesting aspect of, I think that we missed the opportunity to uh, truly prosecute a global war on terror without becoming mired down into that mission creeper, expanding hopes with regards to what we could accomplish.
3: Mark, I, you
0: know, it, oh,
3: go, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just uh, Mark to your Huber's question or Huber's comment. You know, I that that always that sits with me because I I struggle. Right? What what is what is the role of the United States as a hegemonic power? You know, as we talk in class, the U.S. has not known a position besides one, that being the number one in in the world economically and a whole bunch of different areas, even with the struggles that we have, right? For decades that we don't know anything else, right? And so I think that not coming from a position of needing anything, but being at the top has hindered some of our perspective, right? And limits possibly the choices we make but there's also, I mean, there's also that sign of, as you said, the moral responsibility. And it's, that's a tough line to walk on. You know, is it really hubris, or is there a, you know, where does the moral responsibility end for us to help a nation grow potentially? You know, and I'm not, I'm not saying that it needs to be a democracy, right? Because maybe that's where the error is, right? We try to make it in like, in in self-image and that's, you know, that's, that, that potentially could be in error and maybe we just need to let it be whatever it is gonna be, but uh, I don't know. is it, is it necessarily hubris or is it just the is it the friction of being number one for so long? or is it is it truly do you think I mean, because I know you've done some political work, is there truly a struggle of what is our moral responsibility? or is it all three? And I mean, I just wonder what your
2: take is. Well, traditionally it is a struggle between our our ethical principles and our realistic uh, aims. Uh, And remember, if you're a hegemon, your number one goal is to remain a hegemon, right? So it means you gotta use your power efficiently and effectively and only when you have to, otherwise you risk losing that power. Um, So there's that that key component. And the other thing is the the founders said, we're gonna create the city upon a hill for all the marvel and, and emulate if they wish, if they wish that's different from going in and nation building and imposing a system that is antithetical to the culture the political culture of that particular country there's no sense of democratic institutions there was no sense of a nation in afghanistan so what we're trying to do is westernize a country that a was not interested in being westernized uh and b had no institutional or historical background in being that kind of a nation that's what we call mirror imaging. We assume that others want what we like when it's not necessarily the case. That's pure, unadulterated hubris. If you go back to the founders of the nation, it was, hey, we're just here as an example of what people could follow if they so wish, but we're not gonna impose these things on others. And that is the result of our success during the Cold War, where we helped you know, facilitate democracies but we also forget the lessons of the Cold War in which we supported dictatorships because it was in our national interest to do so to stop the spread of communism. So we've maintained the kind of high moral ground of the Cold War without being equally cognizant of the realistic object, object objectives that a hegemon must, must adhere to in order to remain a superpower.
0: So, to, to kind of um, summarize some of the stuff that, that's being said here, because this is an interesting uh, perspective. Um, yeah, so I, I guess what jumps to mind at, uh, with part of this conversation, and, and Pat, you'll appreciate this, is um, um, the book by Mark Bowden, you know, Black Hawk Down, uh, where he, the line where he says, uh, you know, a Jeffersonian democracy does not simply spring forth out of, <laughs> out of the act. And, and that's like problem number one here with our goal of, of what's going on with Afghanistan. Problem number two, well, multiple problems. Problem number two, as you said, Mike, there's there's moral ethical constraints here. The whole like theory, you break it, you buy it. Problem number three, if we're, and as you mentioned about, we're fighting this global war on terror. We've got multiple campaigns, but we decide to open a campaign in Iraq while things are going on in Afghanistan, which ostensibly they had gone well, came in knocked out the Taliban. And as you said, Mike, when you were there, Taliban was basically knocked back to you know our phase one concept of Maoist insurgency they're just building base areas doing doing things but so we've got all these problems going on we're opening up other theaters but my question is we know not just from our war college experience but we we know these things you know Clausewood says the resultant war is never final and we know Maoist theory Maoist insurgency theory we knew that the Taliban was rebuilding why do we shift all of our other all of resources to these other theaters? Not still pay attention to what was going on in Afghanistan with that that you know Maoist phase one build back. Why couldn't we see that happening and and do something to to prevent it? Pat, you want to take a stab at that one? <laughs>
1: well, yes, right. No, number one, I th- I think okay, I think that we saw. Uh, and and also demonstrated by our actions, we saw the uh, the military capabilities and the political capabilities that the Taliban were regaining over time. Right? I mean, other countries were beginning to recognize the reemergence of the Taliban government. Right? And we we were also prosecuting, um, you know, military actions against armed groups under the Taliban umbrella. Um, and and this is a nod to Maoist insurgency. Okay, and also some other. Uh, uh, coin theorists that Mark would appreciate, right. Which is actually, um, a degree of something that, um, we probably need to evaluate at the, at the, uh, strategy and policy course. Right. But you know, for an insurgency to, um, to succeed, to thrive, um, it needs to have a degree of external sponsorship, you know, and it has to have sanctuary patronage, which provides a lot of things for it to do. Right. The political constraints of, Uh, where the sanctuary was provided for the Taliban Um, and that country's own national objectives and national interests made this problematic for us to tackle at both the diplomatic um, and military aspect. So coming back to Mark, right? Maybe that's one of the reasons why we have so many sunk costs economically and aid wise is because of some of the political military constraints that were placed on the administration, and i say the military administration uh, of Afghanistan to try and create the, the environment for, um, it not to return to a terrorist stronghold or sanctuary. So it was like a a clear hold build and we never got past the hold phase. Right? So we just dug our heels in trying to build, but we, we were unable to actually build. Uh, I hope that kind of uh, frames a little bit there. At least that's just my perspective, interpretation, and looking back on this event. No,
0: absolutely, Mike. Any thoughts on this one? You know, my
3: no. I mean, I, 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 my my friction is the is the more I learn about it. Is you know the the desire number one. The U.S. went in, but then this also turned into right a this was a this, this was a, a an alliance and a a coalition effort, right? So, uh, the, the the building of Afghanistan, the security of Afghanistan, the the reestablishment of what it was going to be, the world wanted a piece of this, right? And you know, Mark can probably speak more to this with his knowledge on it, but you know, right? And it's the, you know, as you look at it, who who came to play and who didn't, and it's not that they were there or not or signed their name up, but you know, the elements that you know, internationally, I don't think we came together like we needed to. We didn't provide the support that we we're going to. There was a lot of Words and promises, but I don't think we came together and provided. I mean, even baseline theory of security for a nation, right? That, that you need once a once a once a nation is uh, cleared of an insurgency type effort, the kind of security forces you need on the ground. I forget what the ratio is, but you know, it's like a, it's supposed to be like a one to ten or something like that. One to, I mean, I mean, these are all just you know general math rules. One to one soldier per ten civilians in order to help preserve the security until the government. Can, can prove that it can secure itself and then you can slowly back that away and reduce. I think we we're like one to a thousand. I mean, you know, so our ratios were just astronomically and that's with the global support, you know, who was doing what, when, where. And, you know, and there was a point that the U.S. finally just stepped in, I think also and said, hey, all right, we're going to finally do this because other, other nations were like, no, 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 we've got that. We'll take care of this. And it was just, you know, again, the political turmoil that is politics, the churn of who was going to do it at what rate, at what speed, at what cost, um, caused a lot of um, caused caused a lot of friction that I think impacted then in the end the militaries of all nations on the ground and what they could do and when they could do it and to what degree.
0: Mm. Interesting, Mark. Any thoughts on this?
2: Well, we spent over a trillion dollars over the twenty-year period, well over uh, uh, during this time uh, with all of the types of aid. Uh, then we could dig in a little deeper about how we did this because most of the money went to contractors uh to to uh, reconstruct uh, the and I love the term reconstruct we weren't reconstructing we were constructing um the other thing is just look at a map of the region this is an inhospitable country uh to try to remake right it, it's not only topo- the topography is not only you know incredibly challenging but you're surrounded by enemies I mean, you have Iran, you have Pakistan, you have Russia and China in that region. This is not a region where you can call in allies uh, to help you because it's such a remote, very difficult area surrounded by people who despise the United States and the West. Uh, So instead of looking at it and taking a cold, hard look at what we can and cannot achieve, we decided to go in there and just throw Money, resources, blood and treasure year after year after year without looking and saying, hey, what are we doing and why are we doing it now? And why is this not working out? I, I started in, in in 2009. That's literally over seven years after the war has been going on. And they were still trying to figure out how come we didn't control more of the country. And I literally got into a discussion with a former uh War college student who was the head of the regional command East at the time. And I said, well, wh- how do we not control this? It's been seven years. When do we expect to actually control it? So well, we're making progress. And we weren't. We were already in a stalemate in 2009. What does that tell you? Um, so it's, it's the inability. And, and this is where I think there's a clash of cultures. I want the military to say, just give me more resources. I can get the job done. I don't want a military that says, oh, you know, it's just not going well. I don't know what the hell we can do. I want a can-do military. So I don't blame the military and I certainly don't blame the people on the ground. I blame political and military leaders who are supposed to be above the fray for not doing an adequate reassessment and saying, hey, you know what? We did get our primary aim, AQ, and we did get our primary uh, you know, punishment, because this was a retribution. This was a war of retribution that we started out. And we did quite well with retribution. It's when we went into nation building and just grotesquely increased the mission that we failed. And we should have understood that. And there were enough people inside the military and in politics. That's why each administration, as Mike pointed out, you know, four administrations um, uh, pointed out that they, they wanted to get out of the war. And yet they were convinced over and over again by military leaders and by their own political cowardice. I'm not afraid to say that. I'm tenured and I'm old. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I mean, that's the case. It was political cowardice on part of the political leaders and on part of the military leaders to do an accurate assessment of why we had to remain in there for two decades. And we still have people I have enormous respect for, general officers saying we should never have pulled out. They are still in denial. You know, this is a perfect example of cognitive bias. Uh, bias. This is, you know, cognitive dissonance. You're gonna ignore all the information that's coming out saying you're not achieving your aims. And we have to remember the use of the military instrument is to achieve a political aim. It can do It can succeed operationally in certain areas, but unless it's moving to achieving that political aim, it is not a success. So when we say the military was succeeding, we're saying the military, we're, we're giving a false definition of success, right? And, and, and that's a hard thing for people to understand. And more importantly, it's a hard thing for, for military who've you know, sacrificed so much to accept. And it, I, I'm not blaming the military. I'm blaming political and military leaders. I'm never gonna blame the people on the ground who did the best they can under enormously challenging uh, conditions.
0: So that brings up—it's a good segue to a civil-military relations question: whether or not Afghanistan has damaged that relationship. And I, I think a couple things exacerbating this. We talk about our course theme of the institutional dimension of strategy, and you know how that impacts uh, strategic thinking and, and strategy making. Um, I'm also glad, Mark, to hear you have that perspective because. Mike and Pat and I just walked out of a meeting where a different perspective was given about military leaders not speaking truth to power. And that's why we're in the situation we're in Afghanistan, which, you know, okay. Um but 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 Mike, you also mentioned the bureaucratic forces about units wanting to go on the ground and say, oh look, here's our here's our kill count, here's how many uh, uh caches we we discovered, you know. Let's look good here. Let's look like we're winning the conflict, whatever that may mean. And uh, it, it's been a charge leveled against the military that the military was not writing accurate reports, was not speaking truth to power, was, as I think you said before, Mark, always showing like, look, here's all the great and wonderful things we're doing, not, hey, this war is, is, is just not winnable. We can't, you know, there's no long-term solution to this. Or, or you don't get selected and promoted by giving a pessimistic assessment. In, in any of our branches, right? So I, I guess to, to to pull a question out of that, damaging of civil civil relations, and does the institutional dimension, the bureau the bureaucracy, play a role in that? Pat, let's go ahead and start this one with you.
1: So you know, just as a segue, Mark, Mark, I thank you, thank you, uh, you know, as as still on active duty for for your accolades and you know, for being willing to have an academic discussion. I think you have a can-do military, right? And I think the can-do attitude of it kind of led us into this escapade that we've had. Uh, and and Mike says that, right? Like the last guys were horrible. We've got it. You know, I, I, I like a lot of pop culture. There's a great movie out there that kind of laughs. It's called War Machine. It's a Brad Pitt. It's based on a Rolling Stone article, but I enjoyed it because, you know, I saw myself in it. And, uh, I was like, yep, yep. That's a great outside look into the military. Right. I hope, right. Number one, I, I hope that, um, civil military relations.
0: Ha- Ooh, sorry, you.
1: Yep. There we go. I'm back now. I hope that civil relations have not been tremendously damaged to the degree that we saw from the echo of Vietnam. Right. And I think that those are some parallels that are at least worth examining because, um, Instead of saying never again, I'd rather have a discussion for future conflicts of not yet again, so that we can have that interaction adaptation reassessment and if necessary change change the institutional nature of our conflict. Somewhere between World War II, Korea, Vietnam, the institutional approach of making war for the United States changed. Bureaucratically, name wise, we went from a draft army to an all volunteer army uh, you know, within the span of about 25 years and that, right. And then we fought, um, the global war on terror with an all volunteer army, which comes at its own costs societally, uh, and also, um, creates the opportunities to have the American public disengaged from the political objectives and military requirements. And it's not the, uh, you know, it's not the 1960s protest, right? I mean, it's just it's a it's a horrible inconvenience when it's an all-volunteer army that it can be like you volunteered for that, that's what you signed up to do, which creates this almost tautological circular argument of you're in it to win it. Win it, you know. And I just don't I just don't know yet where that disconnect is. And I would hope that it does breed uh, military leaders and political leaders that can accept criticism, accept honest assessments, right. And reduce some of those bureaucratic barriers of, uh, of the in-betweens, you know, people, that's not what the boss wants to hear almost like the, uh, the curation of presentation. So thanks. Mike. Um,
3: you know, I would probably just say that, you know, the, as, as, as you alluded to, John, you know, the, the metrics that are being, you know, touted at the end of a, of a deployment, um, I think that gets to, you know, as as Mark said, that can-do attitude, right? You gave me a mission, I did the mission, here's everything I did for you to accomplish that. That also leads into that gray area of, um, you know, what is the mission I'm accomplishing? And if it's not clear how I'm connecting, you know, the the end to my task, then I think there, you know, there, there becomes some friction. So you know, I'll go to my 05 and 06 example with Task Force Sabre, you know, in RC East, um, well, throughout, and, and throughout the South too, RC South, um, is that, you know, the elections were, they were trying to get the elections going, right? So as the political arm of the nation was saying, we want a government stood up of the people, by the people, for the people in Afghanistan, you know, I can, you know, at the end of the year, we, we could say we did that, you know, we, we escorted Chinooks and Blackhawks around with boxes of ballots and, you know, carried and provided security teams so that, you know, Afghans could have blue fingerprints to say that they say that they voted. Right. So, I mean, you know, in, in, my, in my year with, you know, some of the stuff that went on, we could say there's a direct linkage between what, you know, the, the administration wanted us to do and what we did. And then there's the friction of the people that are running up and down building, you know, kind of DeMarc's contract, or the you know the engineers building highways that are then connecting a very unindustrial nation, trying to build a a road that connects cities that you're not just getting washed out by mud and falling into creeks and rivers and you know getting hit by rocks, so that you can move traffic and fuel and supplies, you know, across, across corridors with with normal tradition common world ease, I guess I would say. And, you know, and so at the end of that, what do they, what did that accomplish? Did that help with the, you know, political stability? Did that help with, you know, the ability to move security forces so that they could secure regions so that everyone could vote? You know, but, you know, in the end, that unit's going to report how successful they were because of the tasks they were given. And so I think some of the complexity is how do you tie at a very high end, right? What does the president, Congress, all the way down that chain of command do to the Company commander or platoon leader that is trying to manage a team on the ground, and how do you, you know, and, and you know how with that, with that, as Mark said, that can-do attitude. If I'm going to get the mission done, you told me to do. If you told me to, to you know, secure this village, I'm going to secure it. If you told me to provide convoy escort and provide security with, you know, attack gunships to, you know, soft organizations, I'm going to do that, and I did that all year long. So I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm good at that. Um, you know, and so, but in the end, yeah, what good did it do? I, It's tough. But as far as Mill Civ, um, I don't know that I can speak to, I mean, all mine is just anecdotal and or watching, you know what I mean? Like I, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I, there was no rifts at my level between Civ, Mill. I didn't really have much of interaction with Civ, Mill. So, you know, all mine is, is anecdotal and now more academic as I saw things going on and go, hey, maybe we should have done that differently why are we not speaking this way? But again, as I've learned, you know, perspective is a, is a, is a son of a gun. And when you're not sitting in the room where it happens, you know, there's got, there. you hope that the people sitting in that room, making that decision are making the best choices with the information they have. Right. And yeah. that there's not some agenda that's trying to be accomplished. And they're truly saying with all this that I have to decide, this is the best course of action, no, whether, whether it works out or not.
1: Fair enough. Um, so.
2: Mark. Uh, just basically two things. One, why did we succeed so well in the early years? Not just because we understood clearly what we wanted to attempt to do militarily, but because it was a small unit operation based on special forces, intel, and air support and with indigenous forces from the Northern Alliance. That was a wonderful example of how do you accomplish things while devoting nominal resources in, in the grand scheme of things um, to achieve your political aim. And that was just, that's we need to study that even more because that should be the example going forward. When you do big footprint coin, however, you're changing the very uh, nature of the conflict in very profound manner because you go from a liberating force, a small cohesive liberating force, to an occupation force. And that creates all kinds of, you know, of secondary uh, and, and, and third order effects uh, that alienate the population from the liberating force. Uh, that should be something that we need to study and understand that big army cannot do big footprint coin because it's not trained to do it and because it's not the right instrument to do nation building. And even though we had the State Department and our allies involved in it, it is too complex and it is too resource dependent uh, to actually ever achieve something. And the amazing thing to me is, we are the greatest capitalists in the history of the world. But when we go into foreign policy, we turn into socialists on steroids by infusing billions and billions of dollars into an economy, and destroying the indigenous economic infrastructure. Uh, To me, I don't understand how both Democrats and Republicans make the same mistake overseas. The second thing is, when you're talking about Sid Mill, the reason Biden did what he did, and the more I think about this, the more clear it becomes, Biden felt that he was not valued by the military. He had been arguing as vice president to get out of Afghanistan and that our mission should be predominantly, actually not predominantly, but focused solely on counterterrorism, not nation building um, and not remaining in Afghanistan with big footprint coin. He started saying this early. So when he became president and his job was to get the United States out of Afghanistan. He then made the same mistake because he was alienated from the outset as being part of the administration. And when Obama talks about this, he's rather bitter about his relationship with the military leaders. Um, That fell over into his administration. And I think that's one of the reasons he made operational mistakes by removing our forces from Bagram too early. Uh, by not being adequately prepared for the withdrawal, because he argued rightfully that we have been telling both the Afghanistan and the US military, we're getting the hell out of there. I mean, we've been making plans for a year and a half um, uh, to withdraw. So it's like enough, I'm not gonna push back, I'm not gonna add more troops, you guys have known this is coming down and I'm gonna do it. Now that was a mistake on his part. That's why it became such a, a problematic withdrawal. Uh, though I think what Patrick and Michael said at the outset that, look, when you withdraw from wars, it's always going to be messy. Um, so I think there's a, there's an element of that, too. But those two things reinforced one another.
0: Yeah. No, interesting point. So I, I usually don't put my opinion on the table for these podcasts as the host. But seeing as though I'm a veteran of Afghanistan, I will say something about this question. It seems to me whenever we have a, a gigantic failure, the first uh, inclination is to assign blame. And some of the blame that has been assigned is this civil relations question about, you know, if you're on the civilian side of the fence, like, oh, well, the military didn't tell us the right things to do, or if you're in the military, it's like, well, the political leaders did. <laughs> so instead of figuring out, like, well, what are the contributing factors to, uh, to to why this went uh, down as it did, and um, you know, I, I, from a bureaucratic or a for institutional management strategy standpoint, I did see in my tour, uh, you know. A bit of coloring of information um i at one point had a brief a particular marine two star on what was going on in our area of operations and i got yelled at for the truth to power assessment that i gave which you know i was like okay general what do you want me to do a of you know <laughs> um so i think there is kind of a um institutional push like yes things are getting better we're improving we're 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 scoring more kills and they're scoring on us and any information that doesn't Look as good is going to be kind of you know downplayed. What is that? Uh, what is that book by E. H. Carr? Um, uh, what is history? You know, history is a cult of facts. You, you use the facts that you want to prove your side of the thesis, as opposed to the facts that disprove your uh, your side of the thesis. But anyway, um, wanna, we're getting uh, long on time here, so I want to shift into our last question. And given all that we've discussed, given all that we know. Did we learn anything from this com, uh, conflict? What are the takeaways? What do we do better next time? Uh, Mike, we'll open it up with you. <laughs> what do we,
3: fantastic.
0: Um, <laughs> first into the breach. Yeah, I hope you
3: guys learn what not to say during this segment. Um, the, uh, what can we do better? I think it goes back to what Pat said. You know, part of it's, it's you're right. It's not a don't do this ever again, because we will. And I, and, you know, we will. I mean, you know, even if we look at uh, the war, right near, um, you know, great power competition, whether it's near peer, um, you know, war fighting, however you want to describe what we're looking at, um, all aspects of that, irregular warfare, um, terrorism, um, you know, insurgent groups are going to be are going to be an element, right? Whether they're in the media theater, whether in the periphery, or whether there's something that distracts us on the outside, so. This does so even one step further than Pat of should we do this again or you know how could we do it again? It's more when we do this again. So um, you know I like the discussions that what we need to learn is that kind of the discussion we've been having here at the war colleges is we look at curriculum for students. We need to retain whether it's whether it's the war on terror, whether it's just insurgent operations, and you know there's multiple case studies we could use, but you know we have to retain parts of this um, moving forward because it's an aspect of warfare that will always be with us. And we don't, and, you know, so that's, it's never going to leave. Um, as far as the other side, you know, my, you know, my, my bias in this is, it's not so much the truth to power, but the feedback aspect and the honesty to self. Um, you know, we, we walk around, you know, the, as an army officer, you know, we, you know, you've got the, um, you know, you know, um, honesty is one of our core values. And yet, you know, you can fill out an NCOER um, you know, and you can't and you can't submit it unless you put in dates that you counseled the NCO. And if you really didn't do that aspect, you're you're forced to lie on the form by clicking the buttons because you can't submit the document. I know that doesn't connect Afghanistan, but it gets those those small little paper cuts, you know, kind of the death by a thousand is the honesty to self and honesty to the unit. If you can walk in and say, I'm not gaining any ground, you know, I mean I am, I am, I can't manage to you know, this region is not something we need to do and either we need to dump a whole lot more, we need to walk away. Um, but that can-do attitude kind of takes over and we will find a solution, we will find a problem, you know, we will find a way forward and we will succeed even if we color it slightly. So um, I just think that there, I don't know that it's a sieve mill as you kind of left in the last one. I think it's kind of more look itself in the way our design is right now. Part of it is the desire to succeed and wanting to do for our, um, you know, our, our leadership, right, both politically and military, we want to do well for them um, and the American people, but but that does leave us into some gray areas of, you know, are we truly being honest with where we sit and what we do um, across the board? And that's, that's a personal bias and pet peeve of mine, but uh, yeah. um, I know it's rather generic than to say that that would fix Afghanistan, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think we need to be prepared. This will happen again. When it will, that's the question, and then how we approach it and then how honest we are ourselves uh, through whether it's reassessment, whether it's the current uh, actions on the ground or what it is we want to accomplish.
0: No, no great points. Thank you, Mike. Uh, Mark, let's go to you next.
2: Well, in keeping with my non-controversial comments. Uh, <laughs> Smooth. I, I will say something that uh, probably I shouldn't say, but again, that's never stopped me before. Um, I think in many ways we promote the wrong people. Uh, I think we need to promote the gadfly. Uh, The guy, Frank, I'll, I'll use your example, John. You had the guts to go and tell the general something they didn't want to hear. What scares me is that when the military says it's important to speak truth to power, I have found that those people who say that are the least likely to do so. Um, and also the least likely to accept that, hey, you know what? Maybe I'm not right. Hmm. Um, And I don't know how to find people and cultivate people like that, because I think a lot of it has to do with careerism. And this is not just a military thing. This is everyone. Right. How do you please your boss by doing what your boss wants you to do? Um, I mean, just on a a micro level here, I mean, if you criticize uh, leadership in some way, you're seen as a, uh, you know, an unhappy malcontent that's trying to to hurt people. Maybe it's because you really believe in the mission of the place and you want to make it a better place. Um, So I think it's human nature to to don't want, you don't want to hear criticisms, you want to hear praise, but you don't want to hear criticism. And you certainly don't want to hear that you've been wrong and that you need to change. No one wants to hear that. Uh, So how do we promote that value in our military leaders Uh, And like Mike's been talking about, you know, how do you be honest with yourself and be honest with others? One, it takes incredible courage. And two, it creates what you need to do is say, yeah, I'm not going to get promoted if I say this, but it's too important not to say it. And then we need to promote people who say, you know, John, Mike, Pat, you guys had the guts to tell me I was wrong. I'm gonna promote you. I'm gonna put you in for promotion because that's a special kind of courage. And you know, there are two types of courage, right? Courage on the battlefield, willing to risk your life, and then there's courage in the institution, willing to risk your career. And I'm not sure many people are ever willing to risk your career because you work so hard to achieve what you've already achieved. So it's easy for an academic like me who's supposed to, I mean, academics were supposed to be at god gadflies. Um, So we're supposed to ask those tough questions, and we're supposed to be a pain in the ass. And quite frankly, we're good at it. But... Especially you, Mark. The culture goes against the culture. Yes, I am particularly one of my few skill sets. (laughs) But that's the important thing. And institutions need more people like that. And more importantly, they need more people at the top to go, hey, you know what? This is the kind of guy I want to promote. I don't want to promote the "yes, sir." Anything you say, sir. I want to promote the "sir, yes, but." That's the person I want to promote. I don't know how to get there.
0: Well, as soon as we're done taping this, I'm going to send this podcast to the Commandant of Marine Corps and use it as your recommendation for my promotion. <laughs> <laughs> hey, John, I just
3: think it's a recommendation for another podcast.
0: I think it's a- <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. You're in, uh- All right, well, Pat, we'll give you the last
1: word. <laughs> I think that we learned um some very important lessons right and i think that we also um you know as a military uh in a political institution right um we learned how to improve uh from the previous wars 20 years of war the least amount of casualties the highest number of survivors right that comes with some other uh consequences with it right but the prosecution of war the american way of war Uh, was demonstrated over the past 20 years from a lethality standpoint as being very effective, right? So if we could apply that skill set and apply that technology for future conflicts, and like Mark said, right, scalable, achievable, feasible, and selective Mm. on what we want to achieve, then the military will continue to, to serve the best political aims as long as they're clearly defined. I hope that we've learned that the military is a purpose-built organization and not a can-do, one-size-fits-all type um, uh, approach to solving diplomatic, political, economic, societal problems. It's built to do one thing, fight and win our nation's wars. And last but not least, okay, I do hope that... um, when in comparison to, to not only the theorists, right. But in, uh, also other case studies that for the students that we're teaching here and for, um, those that will come behind them and to the greater audience of this podcast, right. The importance of net assessment and understanding your, um, strengths, weaknesses, the effects on third parties, uh, and that of your adversaries as well, to prevent that mirror imaging, to prevent that confirmation bias, so that you get a a competitive advantage to achieve your political aims. If I could wish for one lesson to come out of the global war on terror, that would be it. Where is the net assessment? Because that can transcend military rotations, political administrations, and give a point of reflection for future adaptations if necessary to have an effective policy strategy match.
0: Outstanding. All right. Gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our time today. It was a great discussion. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, And we'll see everybody next time on Profiles and Strategy. Thank you.